Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, uh, lead pastor here, and we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles. Let's go over to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, just grab one off the chair around you. And uh, in our Bibles, we're going over to Acts chapter 17, page 926. While you're flipping over there, I want to tell you a little bit about a guy named William Tyndale. Um, William Tyndale, you've, you've probably heard of him if you have studied the history of of the church. Um, if not, it's very likely you haven't. He lived in the late t- 1400s and early 1500s, and uh, he, was a, he was a brilliant man. He was a linguist, and uh, he became fluent in French, Greek, Hebrew, German, Italian, Latin, Spanish, and English. He was a very smart guy, and he was also a believer. And uh, during this period of time, uh, it, it there was no English translation of the Bible. The Bible was in uh, Latin, um, and so you had to know Latin to access the Scriptures. Uh, Latin had become a dead language by this point. It wasn't spoken uh, anywhere on earth. It had become simply an academic language. And so in that way, um, the clergy, the leaders of the church, really had um, kind of nailed down access to the Scriptures. You had to come to them to find out what the Bible had to say, and as a result, um, that kind of power had a very corrupting influence on those who wielded it. And, um, and so as a result, he, he really grew in a desire to, to see the Bible translated into English. Um, English was the commoner's language, and during this period of time, uh, by the academics, it was really looked down on. It was kind of seen as a, a mutt of languages. It just, there was no eloquence to it. It, it, had, uh, it didn't have the structure of Latin or uh, the beauty of many of the other languages, but it was becoming the common language of the West. And Tyndale started developing this really deep conviction that the Bible should be translated into this common language so that people, um, by and large, uneducated people or people with minimal education could access and read the Scriptures for themselves. Um, You might not like this may not be intuitive, but that was an incredibly controversial idea. Um, That was not something that um, people in power really liked. John Fox, who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, recounts a, a story uh, from Tyndale's life where he's having an argument with a, a learned and, and blasphemous clergyman that occurred after a, a really difficult meeting. And the clergyman asserted to Tyndale, we had better be without God's law than the Pope's, which um, sounds really weird to us, but in that time, the Pope's interpretation of the Bible was more important than the Bible. And so it was more important that you listen to clergymen than that you actually exercise your ability to to engage Scripture. Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. What he's saying is is revolutionary. What he's saying is, I I would like to make the Scriptures so accessible that that a farmhand who has access to his own Bible, knows more about the Bible than you do. He ended up translating the Bible from the Hebrew and the Greek into English. Um, it was Tyndale's translation combined with the invention of the printing press. The Word of God 
uh, was suddenly and widely common available, or at least it began. Um, his translation became instrumental, really, in, in almost every English translation that followed it up, including the King James Version later. Uh, but people didn't really appreciate his effort. <laughs> it was not um, real uh, warmly received by people in power, and in 1535, he was imprisoned after he had, he had been in hiding, and he had been betrayed, and he was put in prison, and in 1536, he was put to death for heresy. He was tied to a stake, he was strangled, and he was lit on fire. And um, that's because he believed that this is a book worth dying for. That's because he believed that having access to the Word of God was worth giving up his life so that others could actually read and engage the actual text. The Bible you're holding in your hand has been handed to you by the suffering and the bloodshed of many men and women who have come before you. There is a long trail of faithful people suffering much that you might have that text today in your language. You guys, this is a book worth dying for. It contains a treasure more valuable than all the gold in the world. The problem with us is we tend to devalue anything that doesn't glitter. We tend to devalue anything that doesn't give us immediate gain. And as a result, we often overlook some of the most valuable things in life. We need to have our focus, our eyes refocused, and our hearts recentered. You guys, because the Word of God is the tool that the Spirit of God uses to change us into the image of the Son of God. The Word of God is the tool that the Spirit of God uses to change us into the image of the Son of God. We need to value the Scripture. All right, that's where we're going this morning as we dig into our text. We're going to be reading out of Acts chapter 17, uh, continuing looking at Paul's second missionary journey. That's what it's known as. He has just left Philippi, having been persecuted and his life really under threat there. He's now going to be moving on. So starting in chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received 
the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The word of the Lord. All right. So, we see a continuation of a pattern that, that has already become apparent. We're going to see it become more apparent. Paul kind of goes into this rhythm, and he, he, he moves into a community with the desire to share the gospel, to see a church planted, to see people hear about and believe in Jesus, right? And so he, he finds the, the, the easiest place, right? The place where he's going to have the easiest conversations, the, the least difficult time explaining the gospel, which is often the synagogue. Because in the synagogue, he finds people that are familiar with Jewish scriptures. They're already monotheistic. Um, they're familiar with the, the covenants of promise and, and the idea of a Messiah. Um, and, and if there's no synagogue, he heads down to the riverside, where uh, it was customary for God-fearers and proselytes to gather, people that were also monotheistic and familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And he would, he would preach the gospel to them. Right? He would reason with them and, and persuade them from the Scripture to show them that, that the Christ was Jesus and, and that Jesus had to suffer, he had to die, and that he had to rise again. And people believe. A small gathering of brand new believers emerges in that place. And as new believers start gathering around the name of Jesus, resistance and persecution arise to stop it. And Paul often, in fact, pretty much every time, ends up having to leave that city, either having suffered violence or under the threat of violence. But when he leaves, he leaves a community of believers behind. He leaves the seed of a Christian community. A church plant is, is in that community. And those people now are, are loving people in the name of Christ and sharing with people the message of Christ. And so the, the beginning of the transformation is already taking place even as Paul moves on and sees the pattern repeated. Last week, we saw Paul driven out of Philippi. And as a result, he ends up leaving Philippi. He travels about 100 miles west to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was one of the leading cities of the time. Uh, it still is. You can go open up Google Maps and, and go look at Thessalonica. It's still there, and it's still one of the larger cities. Back then, it had about 200,000 people in it. And um, after a few weeks, uh, three weeks of, of meeting in the synagogue, uh, there were a collection of new believers. We're told that there were some Jewish leaders, there were some devout Greeks, which is a, a way of saying they were God-fearers. They were from a Greek background, but hadn't become proselytes fully to Judaism, but they were familiar with the scriptures and, and um, uh, leaned toward uh, believing them. And then interestingly enough, there's a note, he says specifically, not a few leading women which is an interesting aside, both here and in Berea, there is a mention of the fact that, that some of the leading women uh, became believers. Now, that's interesting because it fits in scriptural, scriptural evidence that we have from this region and this era that women had considerable social and civic influence. In these cities, in this time, in this culture, um, women were, were given a, a tremendous amount of, of authority. And so when these women became followers of Christ, people noticed 
when these leaders, when these people of, of civic and, and, and social influence became followers of Christ, um, the message started becoming a little bit more noticeable. And in Thessalonica, as a result, the Jewish leaders become jealous. Luke clearly identifies their motives as jealousy. They were jealous of Paul's influence, uh, of the sudden popularity of these gatherings, of all these people coming together and suddenly believing in Jesus. And, and that tells us that what they were jealous of is, is ultimately their loss of power and influence. Um, they, they were ironic in, in the way they work it out. Um, they decide to go get the rabble. Uh, which in the Greek literally is men of the market. So these are guys that, that were hanging out in the marketplace. They were underemployed or unemployed, uh, angsty, and uh, easy to motivate into causing trouble. And so they went down specifically to get these guys and, and kind of riled them up and then took the, the mob through the city and, and uh, all the way to Jason's house. Jason was a brand new believer in the community where, where the church was meeting in his home. And, and they're like, you know, bring out Paul and Silas. And they weren't there. So they grabbed Jason and a number of the brothers and drugged them before the, the city leaders and accused them of turning the city upside down, which, of course, is very ironic because that's exactly what they just did um, in, in recruiting this mob to, to go uh, arrest these guys. And uh, they stir up the fear and, and, and all the rest of it. And as a result, what they do is they end up taking money from Jason and the brothers, uh, basically a deposit or security, and, and they would forfeit this money if Paul and Silas continued to minister in that community. It was their way of basically, you know, like a bail bond, like we'll take the money and, and, and if, if, if you don't show back up in the appropriate amount of time, if these things aren't taken care of, you forfeit. So Paul and Silas decide it's time to leave. And so they leave Thessalonica and they head over to Berea. Now Berea is southwest about 50 miles. Now it is interesting that up to this point they've been traveling on the, in the Ignatian Way which was a, a well-traveled, well-established Roman road. So roads during this period of time were very important. Um, Roman roads especially created ease of transportation between one major city hub and another. If they had stayed on the Ignatian Way, they would have traveled west um, to, the, uh, to the Adriatic Sea. And um, passing the Adriatic Sea, which was a short uh, ship journey, they would have been right at Rome. I, I think more than likely Paul had it in his heart to go to Rome at this point. He tells us later in his letters that he tried to go to Rome numerous times, but kept getting thwarted. Uh, the Spirit of God wouldn't let him go. Now, it makes sense. Rome was the, the queen of all the cities during this period of time, man. He wanted to go to Rome and share the gospel and, and see people become believers because people in Rome, when they became believers, man, they would scatter over the entire earth. And so he really wanted to get there, but, but uh, apparently the, the persecution was, was such that he decided to go kind of out into the sticks. And so he travels southwest into this little town called Berea and, uh, and follows the same pattern. Ends up at the synagogue uh, sharing the gospel. Again, um, they, they are received. He, he comes in as a traveling rabbi. They listen to him. Um, and, uh, and there are new believers. Right? Jewish leaders, Greek God-fearers, and again, uh, women of notable social standing become believers, and it's all cool <laughs> until the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica hear where Paul is. Right? They're like, oh, we're hearing reports that he's down in Berea. So they jump on their, I don't know, their donkeys or whatever, and, and they head on down to Berea, and, and they start stirring up trouble down there against Paul. They're like, we don't want this guy anywhere around us, and, and so as a result, um, the, the church comes together in Berea, 
and uh, they're like, Paul's got to go. Uh, and it's really interesting. I don't, you know, I, I, I would love to have seen how this went down because basically the way it's described is they basically said, Paul, you need to go and we're going to escort you. Um, and so they escort Paul down to Athens, which is a couple hundred miles south. I, I don't know how you escort Paul. Um, he's kind of a hard-headed guy. And I'm guessing that's why they escorted him because more than likely, if he started traveling on his own, he'd just stop at the next city and start doing it all over again. And, uh, and that would have been too close and it would have caused trouble. And so they send him down to Athens. He ends up in Athens by himself. And so he's like, well, send, send uh, uh, Silas and Timothy down here when you get a chance. And and we're going to find out next week, he, he, he doesn't stay out of trouble. Um, he, he, gets, he just keeps right on going. Uh, but we're going to get into that next week. This week, what I want to do is, is really focus on the description of the Bereans. Because I, I, there's a verse here that has gripped my heart since the first time I read it. It's verse 11, and I'm going to put it on the screen behind me because we're going to sit in this verse really for the, the rest of the message, and I just want to keep it in front of you. In verse 11, it says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. All right, when I was a brand new believer, man, I remember reading this verse. I don't know if you've had those experiences where like, it's like a single passage or a single verse just grabbed you. So I was trying to figure it out. It was 30, 31 years ago. I don't know exactly which, because um, I don't know if I was 17 or 18 when I got finally get to the book of Acts. But I was a brand new believer, and, and I was just reading the Bible like crazy. And I remember going through the book of Acts, and, and that description grabbed me. The Bereans were more noble. And I've thought about it since. Why did it grab me so, so deeply? Why did that phrase uh, grip my heart and and, I, you know, I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I was, a, I was a young guy, desperate for affirmation. I had a very unsettled and unstable uh, childhood. I didn't have a dad figure who was helping me navigate the transition into manhood. Um, and I carried a lot of shame. Um, I, I, I had experienced abuse and, and bullying, and um, I couldn't have put it in words, but I craved dignity. I craved having, a, I mean, that idea of having a respectable name. You know what I'm saying? Like, like having a name that went before you. So, so that when people heard your name, it, 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 it spoke of weightiness. It spoke of respectability. It spoke of integrity. It spoke of, of strength. That just, there, there was a pull in me for that. Like, I want to be that kind of believer. I want to be, I want to be a noble believer. Now, we talk about nobility. We're not talking about royalty, right? That wasn't it. It's not that I wanted to be king. It's not that I wanted to be special, even really. When, when this word, this word of, of nobility, it speaks of being honorable. It speaks of, of strength, of character, respectability, integrity. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about the value of a good name. When you read through the book of Proverbs, or you'll see this theme come up over and over and over again, that a, that a good name is to be desired above, above all riches, right? That, that a good name is, is more valuable than money, right? Because a good name, in a sense, speaks of a good character. A good name speaks of nobility of the, of the soul. A good name speaks of, 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 of honesty and, and, 
This is the kind of guy who has a strength of character. Uh, This is the kind of guy that can endure hardship and difficulty without curling up in the fetal position in the the corner and and crying until somebody else takes care of his problems. This is a guy who who has learned how to stand on his own two feet, has has calloused hands and a strong back, metaphorically, right? This is the kind of guy who, 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 man, he's, he's just learned how to operate in and grow into the strength that is intrinsic. To, uh, to his calling. It struck me that only a fool would trade a good name for money. I mean, it's a pitiful, weak man who hides behind the image of his money to pretend that he's strong. It is, it is, it is, it is a weak man that has to, to, to put out this image of, of financial strength in order to project personal strength. He's just hiding and that, that money becomes a shell, it even becomes a prison, um, trapping him in his own lack of integrity. You guys, true strength, true strength comes from character, not the ability to buy yourself out of trouble. Only a fool would immerse himself in the pleasures of this world that you can buy with money instead of growing into the joy of being a, a person of integrity. Moving into the joy of actually having healthy and, and, and fulfilling relationships, learning how to lay down your life and in good and healthy ways for others, learning how to, to move into the blessing of the gospel, resurrection, that, that, that you are actually changed into who God has called you to be and declared you to be, even though you are not fully yet experiencing all the blessing God has given you, right? It is a fool that would, that would hide behind the facade of strength who would immerse himself in the distraction of pleasure instead of actually growing into the genuine character and moving into the genuine blessing that is promised in the gospel. I mean, why? And this is, I think, what, I think this, is what, this is what gripped my heart. Why would I pretend to be strong or happy or free when I can have the real thing? Why would I want the illusion? Why would I try to build a facade when the reality is offered to me? I, I want that, right? I, I want to be that kind of person, the person that really believes this stuff, is actually growing in the strength of it, is actually moving into the fullness of the character of Christ, being changed so that I can experience everything that's being promised instead of just pretending. And going through the motions, right? I mean, it's the real thing. You guys, this is what I craved 30 years ago when I read this passage. And it's what I crave today. I crave it for myself and I crave it for us as a church, man. I want us to be a church that, this, you know, like, we don't fake this stuff. We're pushing into the reality of it. We're pushing into to the strength of character, the nobility of our calling. I crave that for us. So how do we do it? What does it mean to be a noble believer, right? What what does that mean? Well, Luke explains it um, further down, right? Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They received the word with eagerness. That word, received, it's, it's a lot more than just listening, 
It's a lot more than just going to church and hearing a sermon. It's a lot more than just opening your Bible and putting in your five-minute devotion time and reading the words and, and then moving on. The word received can be translated, and, and I think accurately, welcomed. It has a lot more to do with a heart posture than an activity, right? It is an, a heart posture of, of, of welcoming, like, like, like welcoming an honored guest, Right? So, so like if somebody, like a traveling salesman, comes and knocks on your door, you're going to come and open the door and you're going to peek out and you're going to keep them on the front stoop and you're going to keep the visit as short as possible, right? That's not welcoming, right? Think about having an honored guest over to your home, somebody that you long to have invited into your home, into the sacred spaces, if you will, of your home, the spaces that, that mark you, that, def, that, that, that help shape you, that express you. You're inviting them into your heart, your, your hearth, your home. When you welcome in an honored guest, you don't leave them on the front step. You bring them in, right? You want them on the front step as short of an amount of time as possible. You, you want to bring them in. You want to honor them. You want to welcome them. What this means is is they welcomed the truth. Now, I want you to remember, these guys aren't hearing what they already agree with. Paul is preaching to them that Jesus is the Christ and that the Christ had to suffer, die, and rise again. This is not a message they were familiar with. The scripture they were familiar with, the message they weren't. And in fact, the idea of the resurrection was just as foreign to them as it would be to us today. This was a difficult thing for them to hear. So for them to welcome the truth isn't about them just hearing what they already agree with. It's about welcoming in the truth, even if it's going to challenge our presuppositions. Even if it's going to challenge what we want to be true. The Word was a welcome guest into their hearts and into their minds, even though that Word would challenge them in hard and difficult ways. There are a lot of ways, you guys, there are a lot of ways to hear the Word without welcoming it. And sometimes I think we're all, I've done it, we've probably all done it, right? About coming to a Sunday service, you know the Word of God is going to be opened. Um, you know it's going to be unpacked, right? But a lot of times we come to the Sunday service and our primary question is, am I going to be entertained or am I going to be bored? You know, hey, how was the sermon today? Ah, Steve was flat. The illustrations, mm, missed. Not quite on today. Yeah, but was the Word of God opened? We come to find out if we're entertained. We want to find out if we're going to be engaged. And, 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 but welcoming the Word of God is not about my personal entertainment. It's about finding in the Word of God. I, I remember reading in, in a biography of um, Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer did a lot of traveling, and, and he would go visit churches, often churches he didn't agree with and wouldn't personally like. But he prepared his heart before he arrived. He would, he would begin journaling and preparing his heart because he knew that no matter how bad the teaching was, the Word of God would be opened. And if the Word of God was opened, there was something there for him to hear. 
And so he would prepare his heart before he showed up. And in his journals, you can read about how he would go in. And sometimes the, the, the preacher just was bad. And I don't mean just unentertaining. Like, I mean bad. Like, like he manhandled or mishandled the Word of God. But the Word of God was still opened. And Bonhoeffer would still walk away blessed. That challenged me. That's welcoming the Word of God. That's a way of engaging, right, on a Sunday morning when the Word of God opened, right? When we show up distracted, stay distracted, and leave distracted, and are never fully engaged, we are not in a posture of welcoming the Word of God. It'd be like having a guest of honor into your home and then never giving your full attention to them. They're in your living room, they're at your dining room table, but you're busy doing work and cleaning or doing this or doing that. You never pause to actually look them in the eye. That's not welcoming a guest. It might be hosting an event, but it's not welcoming a guest. We need to welcome the Word of God. We need to engage the Word of God. There are other ways that we do this as well when we read the Word of God, but we filter it through our preconceived ideas of what we want it to say. When we come to the Word of God and we say to the Word of God, what do you have to say? It better be this. I don't want to hear this. I want to hear this. When we start gravitating toward passages that tell us what we want to hear and ignoring passages that challenge us, we've already decided what we want it to say. It's like having a guest over for dinner and interrupting them before they can finish every sentence so you can finish it for them saying what they weren't going to say. And you end up having a very nice conversation with yourself. That's not honoring or welcoming a guest. To welcome the Word of God means that we actually come to the Word of God and wrestle with the Word of God. When it says things that challenge us, when it says things, and it will, when it says things that we don't like. You guys, the gospel is a universal comfort and a universal offense. Every culture it moves into, it will both affirm certain things in the culture and challenge certain things in the culture. Because our culture is a glorious ruin. It is both glorious in the reflection of God's gift and a ruin in that it's shaped by our sin. It will challenge us, it will comfort us, but we need to come to it to engage it, to listen to it, to allow the Word of God to shape our thinking, to welcome the truth. See, the Bereans weren't coming to the Word of God to bend it to their will. They were coming to the Word of God to have their wills bent to it. They were coming to submit And they weren't coming just to be distracted by their busy, self-centered lives. They wanted to engage it. They wanted to be changed by it. Do we want to be changed by the Word of God? Do we want to engage it in such a way, not just so that we can understand it or master it or, or be entertained by it or maybe find just enough encouragement to make it through the next week? Do we want to be changed? Do we want to welcome this guest in? in such a way that they can rearrange the furniture, change the decor, both affirm and challenge us. The Bereans were noble because they welcomed the Word of God. So they had a hard attitude that welcomed the truth, even though that truth would be inconvenient and challenging in certain ways. But that doesn't mean they were easy to convince. 
I think this is one of the reasons I loved this verse when I first read it, because I like to challenge things. Like, I like to ask hard questions. When people make easy assumptions, I have always just kind of been the one that likes to come in and kind of poke holes and, and, and you know, I'm like, just, that's, and they did that. And what I love is that Paul's not threatened by it, right? Paul's not like defensive. Don't you question me. Any good teacher loves students who ask hard questions because it means they're actually engaging the material. They're actually thinking (laughs) and not just accepting information to pass a test. Like they're actually thinking and wrestling. And when they do that, they often ask hard questions. And what I have found as a teacher is that when students ask hard questions, I often learn more from them than sometimes they learn from me right? Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word. You guys, they had Paul sitting there teaching, but the authority was the Word. Paul was showing up and taking the position of authority. He was sitting in their midst as a rabbi, but they went back every day and examined the Scriptures. They went back every day and and took what Paul said and compared it to the text, to the Word, They didn't measure the Scripture according to His teaching. They measured His teaching according to the Word. Because the Scripture was their authority, not Paul. I think all of us at times have been deeply influenced by teachers. Maybe there was a voice or a teacher that really just got you at a specific time in your life, was incredibly encouraging, and and you found major breakthroughs in your your spiritual life. Like you really grew under their, their teaching your authority is the Word, not the teacher. I had a friend that went to this big Christian conference. If you're not familiar with this world, there are such things. They, they have these big Christian conferences, and, and they theme them around different things, and most of them really are not worth going to. But, but occasionally, occasionally, they really are good, and that's the trick is knowing which ones. Um, but they will gather these big-name speakers and, and, you know, these leading teachers. And, and I had a friend that went to one of these, and and one of the teachers at this conference was a guy named John Piper. Now John Piper is um, kind of a big deal in certain circles. He's an older guy who has written extensively and has taught much, and, and people have been deeply, deeply influenced by John Piper's sermons and by his writing. And, and this guy took a, a young believer with him, and this young believer uh, hadn't been a believer very long, but he had pretty much consumed everything Piper wrote, which is saying something, because Piper has written more pages than the Bible. He, he, in fact, most of his books are about as long as the Bible. He, he, he is very verbose, uh, even though he's incredibly insightful. Like, this guy just eat and br- breathed and, and slept Christian hedonism. So some of you know what I'm talking about, right? This idea that, that true joy can only be found in Christ, so therefore you should pursue all your joy in Christ. Just be a Christian hedonist, right? He, so he, this young guy just consumed this stuff and loved this stuff. And they're at this conference. He was so excited because he actually got to sit under the live teaching of, of John Piper, and, and, and he was so excited. And then one night at the end of, of one of the days of the conference, they're at the hotel, and they're getting into the elevator, and they're going up to their room, and, and lo and behold, who gets into the elevator with them? But John Piper. And it's just the three of them, and the young guy is just starstruck. You know, he didn't, he's just sitting in the corner staring, and, and uh, the older guy is like, like, hey, Dr. Piper, man, we're, we're at the conference, and we really have enjoyed your teaching. It's, it's, it's been insightful and encouraging. Thank you for your ministry. And Dr. Piper was very gracious. And, oh, yes, I'm, I'm glad that you've been blessed. And, um, and, and then he says, I'd like to introduce you to um, my friend, 
my friend is a, a fairly new believer, and he asked you into his heart about six months ago. <laughs> and <laughs> John Piper did not laugh, because <laughs> John Piper doesn't laugh. That's not what he does. Um, and the young guy didn't laugh either, but it's a great lesson, because uh, here's the thing. We all have sometimes um, difficulty with hero worship. We all at times have difficulty with authority. Uh, sometimes it's because we don't want any authority. Sometimes it's because we give too much authority to certain voices in our lives. Your favorite teacher is not the authority. I'm not the authority. The Word of God's the authority. And that means everything I say, everything John Piper says, needs to be measured against the text. Noble believers put more authority in the text than in the teachers of the text. When I was a brand new believer, I was just really excited about Jesus, like a lot of new believers are, which meant that I ended up in a lot of awkward conversations, like new believers will. And, uh, and I was talking to somebody one time, and I picked up some language from them. And I'm like, hey, are you a, are you a follower of Christ? Are you, are you a believer? And they looked at me, and they're like, I'm a Baptist. I'm like, what is that? I mean, I knew what a Baptist was, but, but I'm like, why would you call yourself a Baptist before you call yourself? This is really strange, you know, like, like they wouldn't call themselves a Christian. They would call themselves a Baptist. It was important that they let out with that identity. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. The Word of God is your authority. The Word of God is more authoritative than your tradition. Right? It, it doesn't matter if you are a Luther, Presby, Bapticostal. It doesn't matter because the Word of God has more authority than your tradition. I don't care if you're Reformed, Dispensational, Charismatic, Conservative, or Progressive. The Word of God has authority over what you believe and what you do. If we are going to be noble followers of Christ, we need to give the Word of God the authority that it's its due. You guys, the Bereans respected Paul, but, but the authority was in the Word of God, and so they measured Paul by the authority, by the Word of God. Paul taught, and they went back to the source, and they compared everything he taught to the Scriptures. And then when they got back together, they were like, hey, we saw this. We affirmed this. Hey, I'm not sure I quite see this. I've got some questions about this. Hey, what do you do with this? Because I see this over here, and it seems to contradict what you said over here. How do you handle that? And Paul loved it because Paul wanted them to grow. And to grow, they had to actually engage. They had to actually welcome in the authority of the text. They welcomed the Word. It is noble, you guys. It is noble to dig into the Word of God for yourself. It is noble to dig into the Word of God yourself. I mean, maybe you'll never be in... in I'll never be a John Piper. But I'm a Steve Mizell. And my responsibility is to dig into the Word of God myself. I may not see things other people see. I may not discover things other people discover. But that doesn't matter. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to become the person God has created me to be. And the Word of God is the tool that the Spirit of God uses to change me into the image of the Son of God. I need to study the Word myself. It is noble to dig into the Word yourself. 
to read it devotionally. And for those of you who are uh, theology heads, that might be a bit of a challenge. You know, you like your systematic theologies. You like to solve puzzles. You like to, man, you need to be in the Word of God listening to God. Like opening it up and just praying through a single passage, a single verse, a single word, while the Spirit drives it home into your heart and awakens within you a responding affection for God. There are others of you who have given yourself completely to a devotional reading of the Word of God. You flip through it randomly and just try to find verses that are an encouragement for the day, and you need to grow in your ability to study the Word of God. You need to actually learn what what the different books are about. The different genres of Scripture, right? That, that poetry is different than history, and history is different from prophecy, and prophecy is different than narrative. Right? You, need to, you need to learn who the authors were and who they were writing to and why they were writing, because you're reading letters. And if you don't know the context of the letter, how can you understand the content of the letter? You need to study. You need to actually dig in and read. Yes, we have more tools today to do this than any generation on the face of the earth. We have more access than anyone. We don't just have a single translation, English translation. We got 5,000, right? The ESV, I love it and I recommend it. It is, a, it is a literal, accurate translation of the text, and I think you'll benefit from reading literal, accurate translations of the text. But there are others, like the message. The message is like a, a living translation. It's not word for word. It's more idea for idea, concept for concept. And, and, and so if you're having difficulty in a passage, go pick up a different translation. Read it over there. Pick up a study Bible. There's stuff online. You know what? It's just as easy to click over to the study Bible as it is to Facebook. And you're going to learn a lot more that's worthwhile. It's right. We have more resources. You guys, you can buy a study Bible. Get offline. There's too many temptations, too much distraction, right? Go buy it for like 15 bucks. You can buy an ESV study Bible. The ESV study Bible is the culmination of dozens of scholars, hundreds and hundreds of hours of scholarly work combined into a single readable volume to help you understand the Scripture. And you can buy it for 15 bucks. The problem isn't lack of resources. We have more resources than anyone in the world has ever had. You guys, it is noble to dig into the Word of God for yourself. They had hearts that welcomed the truth. They had minds that were serious about the Word. And you see that in what they do, right? It says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word. They welcomed the Word with all eagerness to see if, uh, examining the Scriptures daily, see if these things were so. They received the Word with all eagerness. Eagerness. There's an interesting comparison here to the Thessalonians. So like in this verse, there's, there's a, a comparison, right? Luke is saying that the, the believers in Berea were more noble than the leaders in Thessalonica, right? Because in Thessalonica, uh, they were motivated by jealousy. According to verse 5, it says that those leaders were motivated by jealousy. The Greek word for jealousy there is, is zelo'o, or, or we, uh, the Greek word, we get our English word zealous from. Okay, zealotry, zealous. It, it means to have a strong desire to be passionate about what you want. 
So, so the leaders in Thessalonica had this zealotry. They were zealous, but they were zealous for negative things, for bad things. This is where I'm going to go a little bit English teacher on you, because um, I like to do that. Uh, there's a difference between denotation and connotation. Every word has both. Denotation is the word's literal meaning. Connotation is how the word feels, whether it's positive or negative. Right? So jealousy, the denotation is to have a strong desire, right? to, to, to um, be passionate about what you want. Now, jealousy is normally about personal relationships. Right? I, I'm jealous that my friend is giving attention I want to somebody else. I'm jealous that somebody at my job has gotten a promotion that I think I deserve. I'm jealous of the attention that they get, the prestige they get. They, and, and so we've all felt jealousy, and it's a negative feeling. So the denotation is to have a strong desire. The connotation is, is negative, right? There are other words that mean the same exact thing, right? So you can be zealous in really good ways. You can be zealous for your career. That's a good thing. You can be, you can be zealous for, for helping the poor. You can be zealous for, for sharing the love of Christ with people in your community. Those are all positive things. Same word. Now, we have different English words for it, but it's the same definition, same denotation. They just have different connotations, right? So if it's positive, it's called being zealous. If it's negative, it's called jealousy or lust or greed or envy. The Thessalonians were zealous in a negative way because they had really, really strong feelings of self-protection. They had really, really strong feelings of self-promotion. They were zealous for their own personal fame and power and influence. And as a result, they resisted Paul, not primarily because they disagreed with what he was preaching, but because what he was preaching was diminishing their influence. It was encroaching on their territory. It was reducing their social capital. And they were losing what they were zealous for, their personal influence, respect, and power. So as a result, their zeal drove them to work. And they worked hard, right? They, they raised up the rabble of the town to come against Paul. And, and when they heard Paul was down in Berea, they went down to Berea, right? 50 miles down into the sticks. Doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but they didn't have cars, right? That was, that was a commitment, man. They're like, man, we're into this thing. We're really zealous for this. We want this Paul guy out of here because he's reducing um, our influence. So they were zealous for themselves. You guys, the Bereans were zealous too. It says they, they, they engaged with eagerness. The Bereans were zealous too, but it was a noble zeal. Because it wasn't, they weren't zealous for self-protection. They weren't zealous for self-promotion. They weren't zealous to protect their own thoughts or their own perceptions. They were zealous for truth. So they studied the Word eagerly, with zeal, because they were passionate about it. And because they were passionate about it, it said they did it daily. In Thessalonica, it's interesting, they said that met, they met weekly on Sabbath. In, 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 in Berea, they'd get done with a conversation and they'd be like, hey, can we, I'm going to go home and do some reading. Can we get back together tomorrow and talk some more? Right? They, they were in the Word daily, not just weekly, on the Sabbath or when Paul would show up to teach it. They were in the Word daily. You guys listen to me. They worked full-time jobs. They had full-time families. They lived full-time lives, and they dug into the Word daily. 
we always find time for what we're zealous for. We always find time for what we're zealous for. You know, when I, when I use that justification in my own heart, which I do, where I'm like, you know what, I'm so busy, I just haven't had time to get into the Word. I'm saying a lot more about my priorities than I am about my schedule. Because we always make time for what we're zealous for. They dug into the Word daily. Yeah, but Steve, I don't enjoy it. That's part of the reason, man. I tried to read the Bible and it was just hard and it was kind of dry and I didn't understand who they were talking to or what they were talking about. And, and you know what? Listen, I get it. I get it. You know, in the very beginning when I was a brand new believer, I didn't have any biblical literacy. I couldn't have told you the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion if you had I just didn't know much about the Bible. And so every time I picked it up and read it, it was brand new and I had to do a bunch of reading to even understand what I was reading right? Now the trouble is, sometimes I pick it up and read it, and it just is dry. You know, it's like hard to get into it. I don't feel motivated, right? I'm, I'm picking it up, and it's like, nah, all right, which, you know, says a lot more about my heart than about the worth of the text, but, but it still happens, right? So what do we do about that? Listen, there are times, there are times we just need to discipline ourselves. You know what discipline is, right? It's telling yourself no. If you're parents, you know what it means to discipline your children. It's telling them no. Not because you don't love them, but because you do. Because if they follow all the impulses of their heart, if they just jump onto the stream of the impulses of their heart and follow wherever that stream takes them, it's going to be a place of self-destruction. It's going to be a place of of laziness and self-indulgence and and evil and wickedness toward others. And we just, we know with our kids, we can't just let them become whoever they want to become in their heart. We have to guide them. We have to turn, we have to learn to help them say no to certain things and yes to the right things. We need to do the same thing with ourselves, right? There are times when, when I read the Word of God, not because I deeply desire to, but because I know I should deeply desire to. In the same way that sometimes I eat healthy, not because I like kale, but because I know eating healthy is actually going to enrich and enhance my life. There are times, you guys, it it simply can't be, well, I just don't feel like it. It's not authentic if I don't feel like it. I need to be authentic. It's not real if I'm just not loving it. Yeah, and that's why you spend 10 hours a day on Facebook, right? Um, because it, it's, we're such a distracted society. We love the quick fix. We love the quick distraction. We love the visual stimulation. We love. There are times we need to discipline ourselves. Listen to me, you guys. The Word of God is like a treasure, and there are times that the treasure is buried. And you've got to dig to get to it. I can't tell you how many times I have just fought with the Word of God. And I'm like, this is just, I'm like reading this over and over and over. I've studied it, I understand it, I'm just, so I'm going to memorize it. And I'll be memorizing it, and I'll be out walking and memorizing it, and suddenly a phrase or a, a sentence or even a word comes alive. And that's the Spirit of God. Like in that moment, I see something I've never seen before, and it grips my heart in a way it's never gripped me before. And it reawakens within my soul this responding love for God. And I'm not the same. I'm changed. You guys, we, we need to get into the Word of God. Now, don't turn this into this legalism thing. 
where you're beating yourself, I missed my day, I'm such a loser. All right, yeah, you're totally not speaking the gospel right now. Gospel is you're unconditionally loved. God doesn't love you more because you read the Bible more. That's not the way it works. But you will come to understand the love of God more when you read the Bible more. You will come to experience the love of God more when you read the Bible more. The Word of God is the tool that the Spirit of God uses to change us into the image of the Son of God. We need to dig in. We need to grab it. There's a reason this Bible's been handed to us with bloody hands. Because it was worth dying for. There is a reason that this book has been treasured above all other books. It's because the people who have read it, who have treasured it, who have sat in it and sat under it and allowed it to mold their heart have been transformed and freed into the dignity of who God created them to be. I want that for me. I want that for us. We need to be a people of God who honor the Word of God. We need to be a people of dignity, a noble people who dig into the Word of God eagerly. All right, you guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I'm going to um, put some reflection questions up on the screen, allow God to um, speak to your heart, encourage you, challenge you, whatever needs to happen. We're going to share communion in a moment, uh, but that will be introduced. Let me just pray for us. Father, I thank you. Man, I thank you that you've given us even the, the gift of language. <laughs> that, that you blessed us with the ability to reason and to think, to puzzle and to dream, to imagine. And you did that because that's part of who you are. And then you humbled yourself to reveal yourself in the words on these pages, you, you have spoken. Not just to give us rules, not to tell us where to go or what to do, or, but to reveal yourself. Spirit, I pray that you will awaken within us a deep desire to more fully engage. That you'll reward our efforts with delight. That, that you will place easily accessed gems as we open the Word of God that we might be delighted. Even as your Word tells us, Lord, that that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good, that we might, as we open the Word, be encouraged even in the opening, that, Spirit, you'll meet us in in the shallow digging, that we might be encouraged to dig in more deeply. I pray for my friends that have just, I don't know, kind of going through the motions, have grown cold like my heart often does, and I pray, Lord, that you would rattle their cage that you would make them uncomfortable, that they might seek comfort. Lord, as always, I pray that you bring comfort to the afflicted and that you would afflict the comfortable, that we would be a people that are continually being drawn into the beautiful message of your love for us as we engage that message in your word. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.